Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Happy New Year, which means this week we have a Holiday Clips episode for you. Couldn't have a better one than my 2017 and 2018 conversation with Wayne Tebow. Tebow died on Christmas Day. He was 101 years old. I grew up in California. I grew up with Tebow's paintings. Talking with him at the end of 2017 was a career highlight, and I've had a lot of fun thinking about his work ever since, especially over the last week. Wayne Tebow, both parts of my conversation with him, after the break. Now on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles, two special single gallery presentations by Brian Youngen and David Hart. Drawn from the Hammer Contemporary Collection, Brian Youngen's installation, The Evening Redness in the West, addresses the legacy of colonialism and violence in Hollywood westerns. Part of the museum's signature Hammer Project series, David Hart's installation, The Histories, Old Black Joe, centered on jacquard-woven tapestries and a quadraphonic soundtrack arranged by the legendary musician Van Dyke Parks, examines the relationships between culture, geography, and colonial histories in the Americas in the 19th century. Opening this weekend at the Hammer, Brian Youngen closes October 31st, and David Hart closes January 2nd. Details at hammer.ucla.edu. On view at the Getty Villa Museum through January 24th, 2022, Rubens, Picturing Antiquity, is the first exhibition to focus on Flemish master Peter Paul Rubens's fascination with the art and literature of ancient Greece and Rome. Named an essential art exhibition to see this fall by the Los Angeles Times, the show features thrilling drawings, oil sketches, and monumental paintings juxtaposed with rarely shown ancient objects, including exquisite gems owned by Rubens himself. Heroic nudes, fierce hunts, splendid military processions, and Bacchic celebrations illustrate Rubens' ability to translate an array of sources into new subjects. Plan your visit and book free advance reservations today at getty.edu. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents MFAH plus U equals a dynamic duo. Discover the duality within the MFAH's major lineup of fall exhibitions and find your duo. Explore the parallels between two of the foremost figures in 20th century art in Calder Picasso. Witness the first exhibition devoted to Georgia O'Keeffe's work with a camera in Georgia O'Keeffe Photographer. Unravel juxtapositions in the legacy of the African diaspora through historical and contemporary works in Afro-Atlantic histories. See some of the most significant paintings from the Impressionist and Post-Impressionist movements in Incomparable Impressionism from the Museum of Fine Arts Boston. Plan your visit at mfah.org slash dynamic duo. The Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents the exhibition Milton Avery, created by Edith Devaney and organized by the Royal Academy of Arts London in collaboration with the Modern and the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art. Avery is considered one of North America's greatest 20th century colorists. His career fell between the movements of the American Impressionists and the Abstract Expressionists, leaving him to forge a staunchly independent path. This comprehensive exhibition brings together a selection of approximately 70 paintings from the 1910s to the mid-1960s that are among his most celebrated. These works typically feature scenes of daily life, including portraits of loved ones and serene landscapes from his visits to Maine and Cape Cod. The color sensibility and balance that run throughout his work had a major influence on the next generation of artists. On view through January 30th in Fort Worth. And we're back. Wayne Tebow, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. 
Let's start with a 1959 painting titled Beach Boys, a picture with which you've opened a number of exhibitions over the years. As any art lover immediately recognize, it's your take on Cezanne's bather, and it's your take before you developed your trademark paint handling. Why do you like to start shows with, with that 1959 painting? It indicates the primary interest I have with painting as painting made with hands, uninterrupted and not influenced by photography, and influence expressed specifically. In that case, I was enamored of a Spanish painter by the name of Joaquin Sorolla, and his work was entrancing to me. I didn't know anyone knew about him. I found it in a little pasted-in color photograph in the State Library (laughs) and uh, asked people about it. They didn't seem to know him, except when I talked to to an art editor at Art News, Thomas Hess, and I asked him if he knew a painter by the name of Joaquin Sorolla. He said, oh, yeah, the John Singer Sergeant of Spain, he said. So then I had to sort of tell myself I better get some information about him. And he influenced me very much in that wonderful tradition of painting, premier coup painting, where you have to make an awful lot of mistakes to make those risks. And that then I realized that he had come through that marvelous tradition of Velasquez and Manet and so on. But... The responsibility was to try and see what I could do with it. And at that point, I was painting a lot of abstract expressionist paintings as well. And I thought, maybe there's something here that I can combine together and see if I can get something out of that. And that was sort of the story of the Beach Boys. But I had also grown up on the beach in Southern California. Long Beach. And I'd sold papers on the beach, and I'd walk the beach. And I was even in high school a temporary summer lifeguard in high school. It seemed like a love of intimate concern. Are you one of the two Beach Boys? Is there anything autobiographical no, there? No, it's actually, there's a little detail of, as I remember, a Soroya or a Muriel painting of a boy sitting down. And that difficult to explain that the units of impression that came from those coupled with memory is what the painting is about. There's one other early painting I'd like to ask about. It's from 1957. It's been reproduced a lot. I've never seen it in person. It's called Banana Window. It's in the catalog for the Minetti Shrem show. It's not in the show. And it's full of quick, fragmented brush strokes, and there's a lot of negative space between the brush strokes. Is, is it Soroya? Is it an address of Cezanne? Because it kind of looks like the late kind of watercolory drawings with the negative space. And it also, the one other artist that struck me that it has a, a good bit of is, is John Marin. I don't know if you're a Marin fan, but it very much feels like Marin's early attempts at oils. That's a good reference, and it's one which I certainly experienced. Marin was an interesting influence in watercolor, I remember. That painting was made in New York on a series of little scraps of canvas I bought while I went to New York 
to try to uh, meet my heroes. And at night I walked the uh, streets and didn't sketch as I remember from windows, but remember I'd go back and I pinned them up just on a wall and there might have been as many as 20 or 30 of little sketches of windows like that. Shoe stores, jewelry stores, little grocery stores, ribbon stores, like those wonderful things in New York where they have one store selling 10 soldiers or something. That might explain the 1980-something jewelry painting which you made, which I've never quite been able to figure out where it came from. (laughs) (laughs) So the exhibition at the Minetti Shrem, we're, we're taping this before it opens, of course, but it will start before you get to your your trademark style when your your paint and brush handling was what looks to me like it's shorter and stabbier and most of all quicker i've read some interviews you've done with former students who you taught when you were a professor at uc davis in which they tell you how clearly you told them about the relationship between moving the brush quickly across the canvas or slowly across the canvas and how that related to how a viewer experiences a painting What was the beginning of your understanding of that? Maybe sign painting. Oh, right back to the very beginning when you were Mm -hmm. still in Long Beach. So what did you learn from... from... I I didn't go to art school, as you probably know, but I had a lot of wonderful people who showed me how to do things. And there was an old sign painter watched me as a little... uh, I was really sort of cleaning brushes in the sign shop or whatever else they had me do. And I got to do some show cards, which is a poster board and done with a with a sign painting brush with certain, you learn to make certain movements, single strokes, curved strokes. And the trick is to try and do what they call a one-shot kind of painting. That is, you don't crab it, you don't render it, you strike it directly. And he watched me try to make O's. And I had not learned how to make that brush turn so that you could make it in two strokes. So I had to go back and sort of clean it up with a little brush. And he saw me doing this old, wise German sign painter with a big walrus mustache. He says, why do you uh, have to go back and clean up the work? You should be able to do that directly. And I said, I don't know. I just He says, well, let me watch you make that, oh, so I mixed up the paint, sat down, and I started to work, and he moved around in front of me, and I said, aren't you going to watch me make the stroke? He says, yeah, I'm going to watch you. Just go ahead and make the stroke. So I did what I did, and he says, now I know what your problem is. He says, you're looking where you're going and not where you need to go. In other words, you have to risk going to the place where you know it has to end up. You don't trigger along the way. That's crabbing and moving too slowly. You have to just sit down for about an hour, just make these strokes and watch where you want to go, and you'll find you'll be able to do that. The wonder of the brush which we inherit over so many years is great evidence of what that treasure trove of actually tools of looking and responding, how much that means to painters and how they use it so wonderfully. And that's why when they asked de Kooning 
how he did his paintings. He held up brushes, if you remember. I got a big brush, I got a little brush. <laughs> you paint with a brush. So the gumball machine paintings are a tip of your cap to that experience and that learning? Well, that coupled with Walt Disney experience of drawing Mickey Mouse's ah, the circles. trousers. The circles? Buttons. The buttons, <laughs> ah. <laughs> so it looks like the early paintings in the Minetti Shrem show are painted with those quicker, shorter brush strokes. But then, of course, by the time we get to, say, 62, 63, you're all the way making these just lush, rich, thick brush stroke white background type painting that mm. for which, you know, you would become famous and, and, and yeah. you know, your mature style has fully arrived. Do you remember <clears throat> what in 61, 2 or 3 got you from shorter, quicker, stabbier brush strokes to to the more mature style? What What the transition was? I don't think I do. It wasn't a conscious thing. It was a sort of un predictable series of events where when I came back from New York after meeting those wonderful painters I admired so much, particularly de Kooning and Klein, I was making all these uh, what I thought were the signs of art, drips or smudges or fancy signatures or whatever you sort of think of that would make it look like what I naively thought of, well, that's what <laughs> art is. And he said to me, de Kooning, he says, you're, you've got some abilities and you're, you're wasting them on making the signs of art rather than thinking about what it is you want to do. Why do you want to paint anyway? He says, you have to find something that you're really interested in, which has meant something to you, which you've actually experienced, or uh, give it up. There are too many of people running around copying the signs of art and uh, that's and learn something more continually about art history. I remember he was very much interested in art history. But anyway, when I came back then to Sacramento in reference to your question was, well, I guess I'd sort of better start over. I can uh, paint things, but he admonishes me to paint something that means something to you. Well, I didn't have anything. (laughs) (laughs) But I did want to make some sort of formal enterprise which would guide me back to very fundamental things. And I, I know about the basic units that make composition and design and color. So I said, well, I'll start with a the format and began to put some planes down and I'll put some other shapes on, circles or uh, ovals. And that actually, I started making these ovals and thinking about where I'd worked in restaurants and seeing, remember seeing rows of pies. So all from memory, I thought, well, I'm going to make very plain triangles that sit on a plate properly and try to orchestrate them, make them slightly different so that there's a kind of tempo or rhythm or sort of repetitive series of shapes that should orchestrate themselves into something very fundamental. And I ended up with, I remember thinking pies, and I put this 
pumpkin pie color gown. I thought, my God, that's ugly. And there were some leftover initial scribes, ovals and things, which were different colors. And those little edges, I see oranges and blues, which were just actually beginning drawings in paint. And that seemed to uh, somehow compromise and somehow internalize color into this color of uh, pumpkin. Blues. I'll just leave that. I'll leave that on the edge and see how that works. And ended up with this this pie. And said to myself, "Well, there's a there's a nothing. <laughs> Good luck with that." But I couldn't leave it alone. Suddenly, I thought, "Well, I'm going to pursue this because it's really intriguing." And began to do a series of that and began to think of other things which I had seen and experienced, things that I thought had sort of been overlooked. I had painted pinball machines and Coke bottles, ball gum machines, but they were all encased in all those signs of art. In other words, mm-hmm. a lot of silver paint and a lot of gestures, sort of thinking, well, I don't want to really say too quickly that this is a gumball machine. So it was a, an odd, very curious kind of almost non-thinking, I think. But the results of these silly paintings then began to just be a really interesting thing to do. So I went on with it, but at the same time, I wore a parachute. I kept doing those other kinds of paintings. I kept on because I had just started teaching because I had a family and uh, realized I've got to make a living. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was you were still at Sac State? Or were you at Davis by then? I was at the City College. Oh, you were at City College. Sacramento City College. Did you paint over those those parachute, those whatever, life jacket? Did you paint it? Let me try that again. <laughs> uh, those, uh, those were kept around because oh, I had, had a little following oh. in Sacramento. Wonderful people here helped support me with rental gallery paintings. And, oh. uh, so they're out in the world somewhere. Yeah. And they were uh, very much a part of our, when we started our uh, artist contemporary artist cooperative gallery here. Yeah. I was going to ask you about de Kooning later, but seeing as you brought him up, you you went and lived in New York for about a year before coming back to Northern California. Right. As far as I can remember, you were one of the very few, if not the only, of the Northern California painters, all of whom loved de Kooning, Diebenkorn Park, who had firsthand experience with de Kooning, who went and and sat at the knee, so to speak. Did coming back here... I should clarify that. Tyler, because he was very easy to approach. And I went back, actually, just the first time I met him to try and get him to let us come to his studio because we were taking students back there so we'd get a trip to New York. I sat and had tea with him. He was very generous. I watched him paint a little bit. And he he said, well, maybe maybe when your students come. But he knew he was not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> He didn't want to see a bunch of junior college students. Did coming back here with the Kooning stories and being able to relate to other Northern California painters, things he'd told you, did that give you a certain currency here? Did that, did, did the Diebenkorns 
even into the 60s, want to hear those stories? Well, you know, I didn't get to know Dick until pretty later. Like 62 later. or 3 or something, yeah, right? Yeah, I met him uh, making uh, prints, actually, at Catherine's basement studio. Catherine Brown at uh, yeah. Crown Point, mm -hmm. yeah. And he, he, the first connection between you two that I found was in 61 when he was the juror for an Oakland Museum juried art show, and he was the juror and awarded you a prize. That's right, um, he did. But I didn't really know him then. Mm -hmm. I knew about him. So in, in, the, in the decades since the early 60s, kind of the, the, the Elmer Bischoff and David Park and Paul Warner way of painting has, has come to be known as the, the loaded brush way of painting. Did you identify with the loaded brush guys? You weren't in San Francisco. You were in Sacramento. Yeah, they all came to be friends later, and we became pretty good friends, drawing together and actually visiting and so on. I didn't think of myself because they sort of had their club intact, and I was not part of that. I admired them greatly. I admired Bischoff. I admired Park. I didn't know Park. I knew Bischoff and Devon Corn and Paul Warner, Bill Brown, and Nate Oliveira. So in that sense, I was acquainted with them, but I didn't. I didn't feel like I was part of that circle. One other early question on on the style of your paintings. You mentioned the brushes you would use while doing sign painting. Did you still use any of those brushes on canvas, or did you move on to whole different brushes? No, I used those. I used ah. all kinds of brushes. Yeah, I used sign painting brushes. Let's talk about how you made and make still life paintings. Did you, do you set up models of cupcakes or whatever and then paint from them? No, they're all from memory. Even at the very beginning? Yeah, oh, wow. even at the beginning. So the lighting that's in those even early still life paintings, super bright light, tons and tons of light. That all came from your your experience working in L.A. in the in the film industry, came from your interest in light and painting. How did those paintings get so much bright light in them? It's still from memory, but a memory coded in light source regulation. In other words, when, I, when we teach lighting, which, which is the basis of studying plaster casts or anything like that, is simply to observe the light source and the, the shadow core and the highlight and the dark reflected light and cast shadow. Those are all tools to give you an acquaintance with how you make your light. So all of those food things are lit from memory and from actually a uh, program formula. Correct me if I'm wrong, but when, when you would paint figures, you would paint from models. That's totally different. Yeah. So tell me why. <laughs> tell me why you could do one from memory, but for figures you needed models. The figure is impossible to paint. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean uh, that we know the figure so well and live with it that we can find the slightest thing wrong with the best portrait mm -hmm. there is or the best figure painting drawing. I have a little book of the best figure drawings from all over the United States art schools, and every one of them has some flaw. So if what happens in figure painting generally to be successful are determined, determined styles and programs and uh, prejudices. 
a program that determines its base and, and offers the criticism of its character, whether it's cubism, fauvism, surrealism, impressionism, all of those are uh, conventions. Each convention is the basis upon which a painting is judged. So in something like figure painting, mostly when you see figure painting, it takes on a convention, a very specific one. Whether it's the academic one through Ang, for instance, whether it's premier coup painting of direct examination of a one-to-one -one memory of what you've just seen, like Velasquez. See, all, all painting is from memory, but the shorter the memory, the closer you are then to determining what you're actually looking at. Conventions take you away from that and tell you when you're doing an impressionist figure like Serrat, you're only going to be able to see so much detail and on and on. Then the figures work a lot better. But the toughest thing is to take on some sort of clarity of proper relationship, part to part structure, part the anatomical correctness of portion and so on. And that's damn near impossible to do well. One of the things that distinguishes all of these paintings, whether you're figurative paintings or your 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 still life paintings are the are the shadows. And your shadows are probably the most distinct shadows since Pierre Bernard's. First off, were Bernard's shadows important to you? Bernard very important, right. Specifically the shadows? I hadn't thought of the shadows, but certainly the color and the use of color. His his palette is the same palette now I ask the students to use warm and cool of each primary. So you have two reds, two yellows, two blues, and black and white. That allows you to make almost any color that you want. So the shadows, the other aspect of it is the enormous variation is built into the shadow in terms of possibility. Shadow can be almost anything where the object can't. So if you put a piece of pie down, you can have it have almost no shadow or a long, very long shadow in between, a color shadow, a very intense one, an almost ephemeral one. So those options of the shadow are another wonderful tool for compositional variety and pleasure. A lot of times when I look at your paintings, I think the shadows are the parts you must have worked hardest on. Yes, the background and the shadows are enormously important. It's one of the most difficult things to get students to do. <laughs> <laughs> There's a, a fairly recent painting that's kind of oddly dated of yours called Cupcake and Shadow. It's dated 95 to 2012. It's a single solitary cupcake on a ground with a dramatic shadow. And it looks a heck of a lot like a Monet haystack. Were, were those were Monet's shadows important? Yes, very much so because they're uh, opposing. In other words, there he saw that by observation, looking at a kind of ochre wheat field with a bright sunlight 
casting its shadow on this form. He stared at it, and if you stare in the sunlight at that color, you'll get its negative afterimage, right? Which is purple, towards purple. So that essentially is the uh, potential for coloration in terms of his uses. And it gives you lots of, again, license to build in wonderful colors into a what can be rather an ordinary scene. And fauvism is the same thing. The main structural character of a composition is its value structure. And the value structure can then be articulated into the following three elements. It can be a, a hue, a value, or an intensity. And fauvism is dependent on that structural character and the possibilities for it. Derran is probably one of the best of those, I think. His, his fauve paintings are among my... We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll, I think we'll, we'll come to fauvism in a bit. I have more on fauvism. <laughs> I think we're, there aren't a whole lot of us who probably like to sit around talking about fauvism these days, right? <laughs> Cubism is so eclipsed in the United States. <laughs> you mentioned the, the, the different colors and shadows, and I had lined up a painting to reference about that, that very thing, and it's 1971's Four Cupcakes. And the shadows of the four cupcakes are blue, yellow, orange, and green. And often you outline the, 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 the shadows with a bright-hued color or, or colors, multiple colors in one outline mm, of the right. shadow. Yeah. So a couple things about that. In a painting like that, it obviously mattered to you that the shadows were different colors. Why? Variations get away from boredom, hopefully. And just because it, for me, uh, most of the judgment of painting for me is based just on feeling. How does it feel? Does it feel too much? Does it go over it? Is it melodramatic? Is it a kind of ineffable, like in Morandi? His primaries are so unprimary that they become beautiful, just ineffably in terms of their glowing richness with such limited means. So if you vary the color of the shadows, you're keeping any one color or shadow from being too much. Trying to keep the value the same. Mm, oh, value the same. Yeah. Otherwise, it would uh, look pretty rickety and uh, difficult to get the, the form to come together very well. What I'm a... acting like I know what I'm doing. <laughs> well, God. There are a lot of paintings that what a bore. suggest that. <laughs> what, <laughs> what are the... <laughs> You know, one of the things that you do and have done with shadows for decades is that you don't just allow the shadow to blend into the white background or whatever color the background is. You often outline the shadow with well, one color or more often a series of colors. Why do you outline the edge of the shadow with color? Color that's different from what the shadow is, I should say. I was surprised to know that I was a cubist. Thomas Hess told me I was a cubist. The most New York thing anybody ever said. Well, he's right, actually, because I like I'm I'm my what modernist there is in me is essentially a fascination with the flat that can seem not flat, and the the great effect that someone like Degas can have, and keep that surface active, 
in spite of the illusion sort of references, the plastic character, the beauty, the richness. And someone once said to him, supposedly, about the beauty of a landscape they were looking at. He says, man, look at that wonderful deep space. Isn't that a beautiful picture you would make? And Degas said, yes, it would make a good flat picture. And you know, if you're attuned to Cezanne, really, that they, you know what he means. Because that was a relief, in a way, of Cezanne, that he gave us the flat reference continually, or ways to get at the flatness of the picture. Is that why you like bright white so much? Because it flattens out pictures? I like the ambiguity of it, where it's either like gold, either in, intimate in and painting. infinite, like endless, or immediate. That duality is what keeps the pictures, for me, on that modernist ethos. It's, uh, that's the way I see modernism, anyway. This is a total stab in the dark. Is Moby Dick important to you? The novel Moby Dick? Because there's, you know, such an address of whiteness in, in Moby Dick, and whiteness is a background yeah. on which all of America exists. I don't, I can't say that it, it made it any connection to mm. me, outside of its literary beauty and interest. Interesting question. I thought I'd take a shot. <laughs> you never know. One, one way we could continue is to talk about groupings of paintings and just go grouping to grouping to grouping. I'm going to try not to do that and to try to kind of meander a bit. So let's talk about Richard Diebenkorn for a moment. Never mind when you met him. We talked about that a moment ago. When did his work become interesting or even important to you? Do you remember? I think almost the first time I saw it. Oh, wow. So late 50s? Yeah, maybe even earlier. Oh, wow. Didn't know him as we determined. Yeah. But, no, his work was very, very uh, impressive to me. I th almost think of Dick actually as a French painter, oddly enough. I mean, the Bernard, the Matisse, the... Yeah, the, the good dressing, the good salad, the good touch. Have you ever made paintings that you've thought of as a specific address of Diebenkorn? This painting is an address of something in him? Oh, yes. I'm very influenced by him. Such as? Is there any one or two paintings uh, that you think is a particularly clear example? Tabletop still lifes. Cups of coffee. Um, cityscapes, where he makes those wonderful cast shadows of buildings be as important as the buildings. That those was are the very late, influential. Late fifties. His color, wherein he, in his lines, he'll have a single line, but with as many as six colors in the line. That's very influential to me. Does that live in your paintings and the edges of the shadows, maybe? Possibly. His pentamente, leaving your tracks as access to your thought process. His uh, willingness to do that. His uh, admonition about not going headlong, a very important lesson in thinking about your work, studying your work, analyzing your work. 
so that you don't get convenient in the way in which you're working, how long he would look at his own work, and when we got acquainted, how we'd sit together and look at the work. His or yours? His work in Ocean Park when we visited. There were all the clues for his paintings, looking out that transit window and seeing the abutments and the green grass and so on, and the house, little houses, rows. But just how he would look and smoke, unfortunately, at the painting and then uh, ask, he might he would ask me something like, what do you think? So I would look as carefully as I could and give him as honest a reaction as well. Maybe something in the upper right-hand corner. Yes, exactly, he said. He'd go up and do something. And I had exactly the same experience with de Kooning. Where he would ask? Where he got up from our conversation, took a page from the funny papers, and pressed it into a section of a wet painting. That was startling. (laughs) And he said the same thing. That feels better now. What is is that about? Well, I think collage maybe was invented for that very reason. Ah. It reestablishes the plane again upon which you're making your judgments in relationship to the compositional analysis. A startling restart. Just pasting something down. Then, of course, it makes its own convention of, well, I'll do it all over yeah, and have everything flat by collage. Maybe I'm getting off the track, but those things are very useful for students as well to reorient the condition by which they're trying to re-establish what's wrong with their work or what's needed in their work. You mentioned the Ocean Park paintings. Diebenkorn's Ocean Parks start in 67-ish. Your San Francisco-esque cityscapes start in 1972 or so when you bought a house in the city, I think in the Potrero Hill District. I understand the relationship between your having a house in the city and your cityscapes, but were you consciously mindful of engaging the Ocean Park paintings with those cityscapes? It would have been a a slight thing, maybe, if conscious, very, very conscious, I admired those, of course, but I hadn't thought of those, what I was looking for. I actually, he wanted a kind of equilibrium, and I kind of wanted a disequilibrium. But some of the same tools are there, the diagonals. Oh, yeah. They were influenced by him, certainly. The way, the way in the Ocean Park paintings, it's color that leads a viewer to kind of recede beyond the picture plane. I mean, they're very flat, but, but you know, the layers of color mm-hmm. provide this illusion of space, whereas in your cityscapes, the illusion of space is provided by, by the roads and the diagonals, and yeah. the paint itself is flat. Different projective systems were used, which I didn't think Corn was very interested in. But my interest was to use, hopefully various projective systems attempting to bring them together into a unification. And it's right, I think, 
whether I ever did it successfully or not, because that equivocation also sort of interested me, not to have a, a settled, not to settle the thing, but to keep the paint, trying to keep the painting alive, whether it's like a Matisse tension idea or whether it's a disequilibrium mm. notion. But the cityscapes were about a 14-year project overall. We'll probably come back to them. I really love them. <laughs> but, but in the context of Diebenkorn, two other questions. Who painted cigar boxes first, you or him? No, the Macchioli painted the cigar boxes oh. first. You know their work? No. The Italian Macchioli group? No. They painted on cigar boxes very often. And that's where you both got the idea? I don't know where Dick got the idea. But that's where you got the idea. I got the idea from the Macchioli. Yeah. Did you smoke cigars? Pretentiously sometimes. <laughs> there is a, I feel like a big shot. <laughs> there is one paint, at least one painting of yours of a cigar. Yeah. Um, it's just been lit and it's sitting in an I love the idea of cigars more than smoking. <laughs> <laughs> you and Diebenkorn both painted a lot of coffee cups. His were more clearly on tables. Yours, such as one in the Minetti Shrem show, I think a 61 painting just sits on a white ground. Hmm. For you, did the coffee cups come from him or did the coffee cups come from somewhere else? Well, I, I did know that he uh, did the coffee. It probably came from him. I even have a lit that lithograph of his, of the mm. coffee cup. It's a little different. From that. Since mine is from memory, it's just a, sort of a classic coffee cup, as I think of it. It's pretty much the same coffee cup in all of your paintings with a coffee cup. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I like these things, which are uh, so ubiquitous across so much of our land and uh, everywhere, really. Especially, Amer I really do identify with the American idea of, of the work. That's where I came from. That's what I am. If anybody ever does a, a, a wall in a gallery someday of 10 of your coffee cup paintings or 10 coffee cup paintings and four prints, they will be struck by how <laughs> enormously different each painting is. Horizon line, not horizon line. Desk line, not desk line. On, on a white background, on a orangish and purple background. It shows my desperation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it shows that, that, you know, when a painter has a subject around which to build a thing, a painter will keep building around the thing. I'm so damn lucky to be a painter. <laughs> and I want to say something about that because it, it, I've <laughs> come to believe that being doing a painting is a good, really good painting is probably one of the more difficult things in the world to do. And I'm, I mean right up there with our most treasured accomplishments. And to be a part of that tradition, first of all, there's a real demeaning idea <laughs> because audaciousness beyond audaciousness to pick up a brush when what's happened in our tradition of painting, those great painted worlds are an achievement beyond miracles for me. It's engaging half a millennium of history or more. The Ridgeline paintings. These are, these are paintings of seemingly impossible sort of mountainscapes. I think 
1975, a painting called Yosemite Ridgeline is the first one. Am I right? Yeah. So do, it's just a big yeah. thing. <laughs> so do do the ridgelines come out of Yosemite? Is that what informed the kernel you of the know, idea I to think start it doing? Came out of uh, where we discovered gold in the foothills, Coloma Ridge. Yeah, that's that was painted on a spot. Oh, that was in plain air. The little one, plain air. Pat the pastel, right? You know that's interesting because I've I've it strikes me that a lot of the ridgelines look like El Capitan. There are a lot of them. I actually went up there and painted. El Capitan? Mm-hmm. Is it intentional that there is a bit of Yosemite in the ridgelines? Well, you look for forms which you find interesting or, or beautiful or fitted to a compositional probe. I don't remember consciously. Half Dome? Yes. I, I, that's a very specific image. I think it's hard to do anything with it, and you shouldn't do anything with it. It's already what it is, and you're never going to do much. Well, but by the time you started making half-dome paintings, there were 120, 110 years of half-dome paintings out there. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> which didn't scare you off of the idea. Were you... Consciously interested in engaging Yosemite as a subject because it was such a great subject of art in the West and art in America? I think it also was part of some uh, project the government had in getting artists to do, as I remember, paintings, landscape paintings of America, maybe the parks or something. And I remember Pearlstein did something, Alex Katz did something, there were a number of people. I wish I could remember more specifically. It was been some time ago. But you didn't just make one half dome painting. You you kept making them. So yeah, there was something there yeah, for you. Yeah, right. Did that history though of of so many painters going to Yosemite matter to you? Yes, and I like very much to identify with uh, Thomas Hill, and uh, I found a Thomas Hill painting in a Goodwill store with. With stretcher, with stretcher bars, which were just redwood planks, and someone had hung it up by driving a nail through the top of the painting to the wall. Do you still have it? I still have it. I had it restored. <laughs> oh, my God. I paid 75 cents for it, too. Is it a Yosemite <laughs> Thomas Hill? It's I... a typical thing with a little fisherman and a... Sort of classic Thomas Hill. Wow. Tom, Thomas Hill is one of those 19th century American landscape painters who yeah. uh, is too forgotten. He was really Way important. too forgotten. Way too forgotten. That painting at the Crocker. is fantastic. It is astounding painting. He's, Hill, Hill's Yosemite paintings are better than beer steps. Most, most of beer steps. It's melodramatic dramatic for one thing. More real, I feel. Which is why... To a native Californian like 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 me and a near native Californian like you, that's probably why we. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, your half dome paintings, some of your other paintings, and especially the ridgeline paintings, often have kind of a mysterious ethereal cloud right there for no Very apparent reason. Abstract, so, almost not almost like totally. Where does that cloud come from? Probably. A movement I'm not at all interested in, I don't think, until I find out later I am, <laughs> that's surrealism. 
And the uh, first person to mention that was my dealer, Alan Stone. He says, God, you're a, now you're a surrealist? <laughs> but the interesting thing is that a, um, a meteorologist told me that that happens, actually. At half dome. Yeah, I read that. Because they form some way these ethereal clouds over them sometimes because of the weather. So could that... I didn't know that when I painted it. So about the surrealist element of the cloud, that could also, you know, to expand that idea, it's kind of the thought cloud of the, su of the subconscious. But it, it could also be a reference to the thought cloud from cartoons. Exactly. And did you see the New Yorker cover where... The cloud is over the pie? Yes. So that's that. <laughs> so the art editor wanted to know if that was the soul of the pie. <laughs> <laughs> Does pie have a soul? <laughs> so there's a that's an example of your, your pre-art making cartoon days working its way in. Oh, I am an old cartoonist. Yeah, yeah. I love cartoons. Are there any other things in your work that you think specifically reference your cartoon days? Oh, a lot of, a lot of it. Mm -hmm. Cartoon and caricature, which I'm very fundamentally interested in. That's interesting. I went through books of yours in the last week or two looking for caricature, and I couldn't really find a lot of caricature. Couldn't find anything that said caricature to me. So where do you think the caricature survives? The caricature of color? Bonard's a great caricature of color as are Indian miniature paintings. You could almost denote style, stylistic variations based on caricature, whether it's medieval illustrations or Mayan forms, Egyptian. I brought this to some art historians who were very irritated with me saying that those are not characters, those are stylizations. Now, what in the world is different from stylization and caricature? It seems to me character is a better word because it's more inclusive and expansive potential. But I don't know, maybe I'm wrong. You have a cartooning background, they don't. That's right. Oh, one more thing on, on Half Dome and Yosemite and, 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 and that. To paint Half Dome is to paint granite. Granite is white, which is a color you've been known to use. But granite isn't quite white. It's flecked with black. When you've painted granite, you have not added black. You've added color. Is painting granite interesting to you because it engages a color that you've really kind of owned, white, and that you've had to find other ways of doing something with it? I'm asking that horribly. Gee, I don't know. I do know that I like the granite in Tahoe and in Maine, where those slabs of granite are right mm -hmm. in that beautiful blue, deep blue sea colors, almost black and white in a sense, or dark and light at least. You always add color to granite when you paint it, though. Well... Yeah, but there's no such thing as white or black, is in, there? In the real world. I mean, there is in your paintings. All those white backgrounds really are white. Yeah. But 
If you wash your black sweater and you find out it's in oh, purple. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Riverscapes and agricultural landscapes. I understand that the standard art historical story of why you started painting riverscapes and agricultural landscapes is that you and your wife bought a house south of Sacramento at one point mm-hmm. and that you spent time looking out at and beyond your backyard. I think you had pear trees. Yes, a pear orchard. Pear That's orchard. Right. Yeah. So... That's nice and wonderful, but surely there's more to why the Central Valley landscape interested you than just that you could see it. I mean, you still had to decide to make scores of paintings of it. So what are the other reasons? Well, it's a largely unknown territory. You mean pictorially? You mean in art history? Yeah, I haven't seen much of it anyway. It's like the bio, I guess, too, and so on in many ways, but... It was different for me as a California landscape in the fact that it changed so much from uh, fall to where everything's sort of dark, black, muddy, to spring, which is quite colorful, lots of amazing greens. And then uh, summer with wonderful fruits and vegetables and crops of many kinds, and then fall. So you have these continuing color and uh, form changes. What I wanted to try and do, because I'd go down and draw a lot, particularly from the levees or sometimes just on the ground and do do paintings, that I I thought the interesting thing would be if you could do it, it would be almost what I did with the city pictures which finally were all done from memory also, the San Francisco ones, to take units and try to get them to come together. So that's what those Delta series were, were composed of. They're all done from memory and from bringing those various things together, the water, the patterns, the seasons, and to try to get a painting out of that combination. So it really is like a color and design project using actual elements from having drawn and painted there. We touched on fauvism earlier. Mm. Is fauvism more important in the Central Valley landscapes than maybe anywhere else in your work? I think it's more blatant and bigger. I don't think vastly different. It's definitely bigger. I mean, bigger, yeah. yeah. Were you conscious of that when you were when you were, when you were painting them? Mm-hmm. Because I mean, it's always different when somebody like me comes along and sees or thinks of twenty of them at once. Because then you really get the opportunity for something to blare out at you when you mm-hmm. see or think about a group of them together. But when I do, boy, they scream phobism and a, and an engagement mm-hmm. with. That kind of use of color. Yeah. You know, another one of the elements in the riverscapes that's not in fauvism mostly is water. The water, the rivers in, 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 the, in, the, in the riverscape and, and farmscape paintings are, are these dramatic gradations of one or two colors. They're really spectacular. Was part of the idea or interest in those paintings to paint water? Well, it was... It was a, wonderful challenge to try and see what you could do with it. I tried lots of different 
ways of dealing with it. But water, I suppose, was the hinge for most of them, maybe, mm -hmm. primary. Its effect, probably the most dramatic outside of uh, farmers toiling and uh, marking. Are the riverscapes a specific intentional engagement with Thomas Cole's famous painting, The Oxbow, at the Metropolitan? I knew it, certainly and appreciated it a lot. I think I've thought about it when uh, sometimes trying to see, well, do I want a pool here? Do I want a reservoir? Do I, what would work in this area and so on? So the, the use of memory certainly would, that would be an enhancement to think about. And I have thought about it. And assigning different- Hudson River painters. And, those marvelous uh, ones that Barbara Novak re sort of rediscovered of those nature and culture. Beautiful black seas and red tidelands. She left out the West, though. Wonderful, yeah. She cut out the West from her <laughs> histories. You're a big tennis player. You still play? <laughs> still playing. Wow. <laughs> well, to say I'm playing, at 97, all we do is go out and insult each other for about <laughs> an hour and a half. <laughs> but it gets us out and gets us moving around. Oh, no, I love tennis. Tennis is a magical game. I'm a big tennis nut, so. <laughs> uh, I know you've played Frank Stella a bit over the years, right? <laughs> Who wins? He beat me. He beat you? <laughs> he, uh... He, at that time, was painting those protractors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and he had this looping forehand. That ah, the ball just, yeah. that's what it does. Yeah. <laughs> you don't move in on it, it destroys you. <laughs> but that's, tennis is like, <laughs> tennis, the joy of it is playing on a Mondrian painting. Well, you've made tennis paintings, both of individual tennis players, kind of in the midst of a service motion, <laughs> yeah. and you fulfilled a commission for Sports Illustrated oh, to go paint Wimbledon. Treat that was. Yeah. So, how did that happen? Well, this crazy art director, wonderful guy, Dick, what Richard, what? <laughs> there it goes again. He was an art director for Life magazine and got. Matisse to let him do a cover for Life magazine for Christmas of his original, of his, cola, uh, his cut out paper. Oh. When he was doing the chapel. Yeah, yeah. And that put him in good shape. <laughs> they let him do a lot of projects. And when he got to Sports Illustrated, he got some of the pop artists to go to places, sports and then produce work for the magazine. And he came to me and asked me if I, how I would like to go and make a series of paintings of hockey. And I said, hockey? I never even watch hockey. All they do is fight. <laughs> he says, yeah, but they have a nice white background. Ah, yeah. <laughs> I said, no, doesn't compute. Well, he says, how about the salt flats racing? And you did make a painting of the salt flats, of cars on salt flats. Did I? Yeah, one. Not for him. Not man. for him. Not for him. Not for him. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
So he said, well, what, what, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I've never been to Wimbledon. Well, that, how that happened. There were four <laughs> paintings in the magazine. Did you make more? Did, I do? Did, did you make more at Wimbledon than just the four in the magazine? made lots of drawings, but ah. those are the only four. <laughs> I was almost afraid to show him what I'd done, especially because one is only a ball on a That's line. an amazing painting. That's an amazing <laughs> painting. That's that's one of my favorite Wayne Tebow's. You play tennis? No, but I watch a lot of it. I travel yeah. to a lot of tournaments and stuff. Mm. I haven't played since high school. But that one of the ball on the line, because you don't know if it's in the air or if it's on the ground. You don't. There's there's obviously the Mondrian thing. Funny painting. It's a really cool painting. But anyway, they, that was a marvelous two weeks. Have you been back? Did you ever go back to Wimbledon? No, I haven't. Did I go back? No. Mm. I've I, never been. It's wonderful. wonderful. If you love tennis, that's the one. Let's do a little cityscapes and freeway paintings. You know, as we mentioned before, the cityscapes are obviously related to San Francisco, while not being San Francisco. But especially for those of us who have spent a lot of our lives there, it's impossible to separate those paintings from, from San Francisco. At some point, I'm guessing you had to decide that you were okay with the cityscapes being pretty close to being of a single city. I mean, they're definitely, yes. they're definitely not Kansas City. Yes. You know? <laughs> so why were you okay with Although that? Although the, uh, the roadways, the freeways were... That was done, that was started at least, and done in Houston, Texas, which is a lot like Los Angeles. Totally. Wait, <laughs> wait, wait. How did, how did the freeway paintings start? In well, I was invited uh, by Mrs. Demonil to visit Rice University and do a demonstration for students. And we got acquainted, and so then I, uh, while I was there, I, I remember making that, starting that painting. For some reason, so I did, a, I did a shoe painting there. A very, a very Van Goghish shoe painting. Yeah, it's black a, shoes. Just shoes, rows of shoes. Yeah, and I remember she came along to watch me one Sunday while I was painting, and kept asking, "Why did you put that there?" And I had to say, "I, I, I don't know. Just, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think she's very impressed." <laughs> So that's why in some of the freeways paintings there are smokestacks, and, and maybe because I, I didn't know they were they were Houstonian. There were some big building things going on. I remember and very lot of smoke. So why was it okay that so many of the cityscapes, all of the cityscapes, resemble San Francisco? Uh, I think for that dislocation idea that. Uh, equilibrium, the falling, the, uh, the danger of, of balance and uh, earthquakes and so on. And where they would put something, where there was a kind of what I would call contextual impropriety. Yeah. That, that thing should not be on that big pile of dirt, <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> but it was fun to fool around with that again, uh, again, my old cartoon. One, one of the things about the freeway paintings that I didn't 
know until I was researching to talk to you. About eight or nine years ago, you told Eve Ashheim in this wonderful little book of a series of interviews with you that the freeway paintings were all over paintings like Pollock, where mm. where the the painting goes end to end, top to bottom, fills the whole darn thing. Except for you had wanted to do all over paintings in a representational mode and, and thus freeways and cars and the buildings. Simple question. Why was all over painting a la Pollock only with a different subject matter, something that you wanted to do? I think something of my experience in New York with those abstract expressionists who were often talking about, particularly like Milton Resnick, Pollock, Barnett Newman, they were interested. They said, we do these big paintings because we want them to escape from the room and escape from themselves and come out and they would sort of picturesquely say, we want them to dance out into the world. We don't want them contained in these. That's why we don't frame them. We just strip them or not even that. And that interested me as an idea that if you mm -hmm. can sort of suggest that, these freeways that would go on and on clear across the country and so on. That was one of the ideas. The problem with that is it's a lie because it, first of all, is contained. And if you don't pay enough attention to that, it's too likely to become more like wallpaper and doesn't self-contain mm. and self integrate as a composition, which is such an important thing for paintings, I think. Paintings are little worlds, painted worlds, in my definition. So they need to be completed or have a sense of completion. They, they need to stay alive, they need to have energy, they need to have tension and all of that. But finally, it should be a little complete world or view of the world. I had this wonderful trip just last year, going to see my big hero, Velasquez. Mm. That painting, <laughs> I got, got to see it. Well, it's... Las Meninas, you mean? Yeah, Las Meninas. It's mostly just stuff, apart from the figures. And the mirror. You're, well, you're seeing the back of a canvas, all that section, is, that's about half the painting. Then there's the back part, which another section, he's standing there with his brush, and then this little group of people, the nuns and the maids and the dog and so on. It's an astounding little world that's uh, made itself almost as real as the world for me. Have you made a painting about Las Meninas? I haven't. No, I don't dare. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't talked about cakes and pies, so we should talk about cakes and pies for a minute. Back in the day, you purchased paints from Bay City Paints, this is in the early 60s, and found that their paints were too thick to achieve the textures you wanted for painting icing and cake. There's, there's a great little bit in the catalog for the Minetti Shrem show that focuses on this. You told an interview, an interviewer, I think it was Carol Mancusi and Garo about 15 years ago, 
that you sort of needed to whip up those paints and that you would then when after you had whipped up the paints would pretend you were actually icing the cakes in the paintings was the important thing about that the relationship between what you were making and trump Loet? i think that trick of the eye painting style doesn't interest me much unless it's very low bar relief painting Anytime you put a violin in or a gun, anything which comes out too far, for me, it just absolutely doesn't work at all. Yeah. It has to be like papers, stamps. Peanuts. About the paint, Bay City was a terrible paint. It, <laughs> it's, uh, it's like an enamel, really, and it's runny. It's like Pollock's use of duco paint. Mm automobile paint. He discovered that from Siqueiros, who used it in Mexico when he was down there. But the paint which I used had to be more, you see, if you use runny, it doesn't form the grooves. In the ridges. It doesn't then, yeah. stay rigid. So you have to get it so it's viscous. That was the, the uh, reason why I had to abandon Bay City paints and just use, actually, uh, titanium white in its uh, basic form. And then put with it, at that point I was using that age-old uh, medium, a third turpentine, a third damar, and a third linseed oil, I think. One of those three things. Did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, did you actually whip the paint? Like with a whisk or something? or a... No, you can do it with a brush. Get it enough so it'll sort of stand up in peaks. Or... So at about this time, you make a painting called Chocolate Meringue, and a couple of years later, The Great Neapolitan Pies. Meringue, of course, is whipped. Were you consciously extending a line between subject of the painting and what you had to do to make the painting? I didn't think of them as separate for some reason. There's a story, however, about Alan Stone decided on the first show that he wasn't going to serve wine. He was going to put pedestals up with actual pies and hang strips of, of suckers in cellophane or other things like that, rather to get the people interested. Well, he had a French baker make a meringue pie. And he said, that's not, that's not tall enough. That's just a little flimsy meringue. I want one really whipped up. So he went back, brought back another one. <laughs> says, not, not high enough. He says, God damn it, that's about as high as you can make meringue. <laughs> so he, Alan brings out the painting of it. Oh, God, he says, that's not meringue, that's marshmallow. <laughs> A fake meringue. <laughs> you, you didn't change the title. <laughs> Did you paint meringue or marshmallow differently than you painted icing? I don't Not very much, I don't mm. think. One of, one of the uh, frostings I squeezed out of a tube. The paint came out of it? You, you mm -hmm. squeezed? 
Did you like the way that I worked? I think it's the one in the National Gallery. I think you're right. Yeah. I think you're right. That's right. Did you like the way that worked? No, because it seemed too tricky for some reason. Tricky in terms of doing it or tricky in the visual? Well, I think I should have used a cake froster. <laughs> <laughs> if I'm going to try and do that, get, get a good one that you could really, you know, explore as a making... <laughs> writing and all that, rosettes and so on. Did you ever? I didn't, no. <laughs> You still could. <laughs> no, I've made a lot, of, uh, a lot of mistakes, which is part of it, but fun to think of it. You, know, you talked about <clears throat> one of the uh, reasons the Central Valley landscape was appealing was because no one else had really done it as a painter. Were cakes interesting as a still-life subject because... While there was a long still life tradition, mm-hmm. there were there were not a lot of cakes. It was a still life subject you could own. I didn't think of it then, but uh, I I enjoyed always the long tradition of food painting. Mm-hmm. Some really beautiful things, Bruegel, and the little guy's got his hand in a pie, I think, and thumb in a pie or something. And it was great Dutch and. Spanish still life, Chardin. food painting, Chardin, what a wonder. We haven't talked about much about your figurative paintings yet. When you worked at Universal Studios in Los Angeles in the late 1940s, I guess, maybe the early 50s, right around Just there? Just out of the army, 45, yeah. 46, yeah, around there. I read that one of the things you did, you know, one of your jobs was to run a spotlight following actors around the stage. That was in the high school days. Oh, that was earlier. That yeah. was earlier. That was when I was part of a stage crew in Polytechnic High School. So you told Eve Ashheim, the former student of yours, that running the spotlight was an influence on you as a painter. How? Well, yeah, Gene Cooper says that. Oh. And his first early book talks a lot about the stage. And certainly it's important, I think. Important in what way? Lighting the figure. I did do that at Universal Studios where I had to... There was a wonderful art director, Misha Kalis, sort of legendary guy, who hired me out of sympathy. (laughs) He looked at my sample and said, those are the worst damn samples I've ever seen. <laughs> but he, I had a few photographs of my paintings, and he he took me on that basis. He said, I'm a painter, he says. And he was a pretty good impressionist painter. He gave me the job of a great film they made called The Killers. Yeah. That Hemingway story. Yeah. Had me read it, and then told me to make... Uh, an ad for it. We have to make an ad that fits this size for newspapers to billboards, right? And uh, he said, no, this is a, a dark story. There's uh, Ava Gardner. This is one of her early films. She's in a revealing black dress. I want her as in some way encased in those letters. Killers, and so I did my best, came in, looked at it, and just blew his top. God, eh, 
I didn't want to ask for a perfume ad, because I'd made these little sweet little... <laughs> Anyways, get out of here before I kick your balls out. And the word out <laughs> made a big impression <laughs> on me. <laughs> but he was wonderful. He says, now, here's the way to go about this. And he put a tracing pad. <laughs> he took a pet cart carpenter's pencil with that big flat edge. <laughs> he just, just tore the paper and he says, <laughs> anyway, he sent me back, and then I had to go and photograph it. That's what I was getting to, photograph Gardner with a photographer. And as, we're, as I'm leaving the office, he says, and make her show some legs. <laughs> so here I am, 21-year-old kid. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I'm supposed to tell Ava Gardner, so I tell the photographer now, Misha wants you to tell Ava Gardner to show some legs. He said, I'm not going to tell her that. <laughs> well, I'm not going to tell her. But anyway, I'm getting at it because you spotlight them. So I'm trying to get images to do. Anyway, the upshot was Ava comes. She's very flouncing around. So on. Now, what do you want me to do? I said, and you, she had a black dress on. <laughs> it took We took a few photographs and then I said, well, I better tell her because she was just kind of standing and she did have her, her, a split here. In her dress. In her dress. So I, I said, the art, uh, the uh, Misha Kalis asked me to tell you to, when you're posing, because you're going to be like almost like a letter, to show some leg. And she looks at me, she says, so, you want to see legs, do you? And she pulls up her dress like this, <laughs> legs. <laughs> I was so embarrassed, I couldn't see. But that was, I don't know why, what am I telling you all this stuff for? Anyway, I had a wonderful uh, time being a, trying to be a painter. So that, that light... The intensity of light that you would use right. yeah. in stage in Hollywood. Later did on, I photographed you. Uh, several actors, and that was the thing to really light them so that this shadow. I think he, uh, Gene, reproduces some studio photograph mm. of that kind, showing the shadow and showing the Hoot Gibson or somebody. We talked about Richard Diebenkorn earlier. <laughs> we haven't talked about Robert Bechtel. In 1977, you made a painting called 24th Street Intersection of an intersection of, you know, four-way San Francisco-esque intersection with power lines above it. It's a phenomenal painting. Well, Robert Bechtel lives around the corner from 24th Street. I think Bechtel was at 20th in Texas or something. Mm. Maybe still is. Were his paintings, and maybe especially his prints, of... San Francisco hills and power lines important, interesting? I didn't know them. Didn't know. Did that. He's a good guy, good, good painter. But I don't use photography and think of it as a real enemy of painting. But those names are not correct. They're just names. I right, right, on. right. Well, but in that case, I wondered if there was a, a tip <laughs> of the hat. You know. Yeah. You, you've all in, in you've also made a number of paintings of 
you know, where 80% of the painting is a window through which we see a view and there's someone sitting at the very bottom of the painting. And we have mm. this moment of, oh, yeah. of confusion and delight between flatness and recession and organizing the thing in our head. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing those are a little bit informed by Elmer Bischoff or Hopper. Bischoff? Hopper? Sure. Yeah, they're... Bischoff's a wonderful painter. He has a wonderful painting of someone in a library in a little orange sweater that is awfully nice painting. Yeah, he was an influence also. I don't know people who've painted that way that have come into my mind at least. Maybe you know some that have used that idea, do you? The the idea of... Of a f- figure in with a large enough window to see a uh, city? Bischoff. I mean, he's the only... I mean, I just think of it, you know, I think it's in your paintings, it's in some Bischoffs, although the city beyond the window in your paintings is much clearer. I guess we think or assume that when Pizarro, in those late paintings where he's looking down at Parisian boulevards, I guess we assume he's removed the window. But the figure's not there. But there's no figure there. We are the, yeah. No, those are marvelous paintings, yeah. I wanted to ask about a not, an undated painting of yours titled Condiment Bowls, which kind of look like paint cans but aren't quite. Are they uh, food bowls? Yeah. Is that a bit of a reference to the painter's place, you know, your take on John's paint cans or de Kooning's infamous sloppiness? Not to my knowledge. It was more yeah. kind of straight painting with those ovals yeah. that felt so nice. And there were a number of those. Yeah, and they're terrific. And they feel very much like paintings about painting, mm-hmm. even though you're painting condiments. Yeah, wonderful things in there. Do you like that idea of linking painting to the outside world by making paintings of things like condiments, but that are actually paintings about making paintings? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd still do that. Almost all of the uh, people, places, and things are repeated on and on still these days. If I want to paint a pie today, I just go and paint one or a series or whatever. I don't like the idea of a stasis of any kind. Every painting has its own measurement and condition of critical judgment. It's like when Catherine was so irritated with me because I brought little snapshots of my paintings to make prints. She was horrified. Why? She said, I don't, I don't want people coming here with their ideas. This should be original work. You should think of new ideas about painting. She went upstairs irritated, I mean, and she came down with a, a nice little lunch with a beer and an avocado and a sandwich. And she says, why don't you make a drawing of that? So I did, and actually I did. (laughs) And then we had that discussion, and she she said about originality, and I said, Catherine, you have to understand the way I feel about it is that every painting, if I'm going to paint a gumball machine now, all I have is this needle, a piece of copper, and that gumball's got to come up to the mark 
Otherwise, yeah. I'm not. It's, there's nothing for me to copy. There's no color. There's no, the size is different. It's a new problem because it's and a different medium. She she tight. She tells that story on herself as a what she thought yeah. of as her naivete. So now she lets me make all kinds of mistakes. <laughs> we never print. So there's a great example. Or there are two great examples of your having made work about other work, other other artists' work. So it's interesting to hear that story and then to kind of try to segue to this one. One's a painting called 35 Cent Masterworks from 1970-72, which is just an outrageously funny painting. I mean, there's a lot of humor in a lot of your work, and, I'm, and, and, and it's totally here. There's a, a little 35 cent postcard version of Cezanne, Monsau Victoire, uh, Matisse's The Surf, a De Chirico, a Degas, a Monet, a Mondrian, a Velasquez. You know, so it's, it's both this hat tip and riff on painters you love. And, and another painting kind of in the same vein, um, but done differently, is a 1962 painting called Four Pinball Machines, in which the vertical part of the pinball machine, so not the part you're playing pinball on, but the lit up part that has <clears> the score and tells you right. how you're doing and all that. The four pinball machines are, that, that vertical part is your having a little snarky fun with forms that we would know from Jasper John's painting, from, from Frank Stella, from Ryman. And in both of those paintings, you were un being unusually direct in addressing other painters. Usually painters kind of hide their address of other painters a little bit. Mm. But this was, boom, right? Both of these paintings are just taking them head on. And early in your career, in both examples, what made it okay to do that? Painters are so shy about that, but... That's the way most painters have learned, making copies. Remember, Matisse was a kind of professional copy for a while. And never shied away from it, really. And never uh, worried about it. I have my students where they have to do it in order mm -hmm. to get intimately connected to what painting is about and short circuit with some sense of in intimacy how it feels to paint a certain way or to move your brush or to have to account for a certain shape or a character of brush strokes or whatever. Those are the tools that everybody uses. Interestingly, I didn't realize any influence in those pinball machines. Oh, come on. Oh, come on. I have to say the truth. <laughs> Subconsciously, maybe? It startled me. I'm going to have you point out the ones that the influence of those. I'll show you. I'll show you when the tape's off, or I'll show you. I'll show you at the end yeah. when I can move the computer. <laughs> yeah. I'm happy to hear it, but I want to see it directly. Oh, I'll. I'll. Yeah. I'll. I'll and we'll have images on manpodcast.com. There are two other specific paintings that I suspect are you consciously having a little funny bone fun with your peers. 1961 painting drink syrups, four vats of brightly colored mm, drink liquid. Right. Is that you having fun with Ellsworth Kelly? No? Mm -mm. Just reads that way. No. There might be some others that Kelly and, uh, was directly used. The drink syrups. 
And there's a, uh, a 1966 pastel called Bale Rose. They, they look like, and of course the title suggests they are, bales of hay, rectangular bales of hay on a field. Oh, yeah. Is that, is that having a little fun with Donald Judd? No, it has fun with Manet, Monet. Ah, where the haystacks have been bailed up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, I had never read, and I'm embarrassed to say I hadn't even noted existed, an artist statement, which is really a short essay, that you provided to MoMA in 1962. They asked you for an artist statement about your work. And it's maybe 800, 900 words long. And it's reproduced in the, at the end of the catalog for the Minetti Shrem show, which is how I found out about it. And it's quite amazing. And it's where your art still is all these decades later. Do you remember writing it? Do you remember, was it specifically for MoMA or if you'd written it for something else? For MoMA? San Francisco or? New York. New York. I don't remember them ever asking me anything. Oh, all right. But Kenneth Baker, the art critic, when he saw the show at first, asked me for a statement. Is it yeah, maybe that's a it. lollipop tree yes. worth yes. Yes. painting? Yes. That was for Kenneth Baker. Oh. And he didn't know that. I didn't know he was going to use it. Yeah. Uh. He just showed. Well, Wayne, Wayne Tebow, it's been a pleasure, a thrill. Thank you so much. Not at all. <laughs> That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.